Hello and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Alistair. And I'm Jed. And every fortnight, one of us tells the other a story from the rich and varied history of Sydney and its surrounds. Last episode, I was up, and Jed, do you happen to remember what I told you about? I do. We talked about Louisa Collins, who was the last woman hung in, or hanged, still don't know which one's right, (laughs) in the state of New South Wales, or the colony of New South Wales, as it was then known. Indeed. And I believe at that time you offered me a cryptic clue, which I somewhat remember, but would you be able to give it to me again? I can. Uh, off the top of my head. Here we go. Uh, it was uh, This week's episode will be a story about a group of people who had to move to escape rising waters and then had to move again to escape racing autos. Yeah. Yep. That's what I remember. The rising waters and the racing autos. I didn't have any idea at the time. You've had a two-week holiday where you've been just relaxing and thinking about the clue, so I'm sure you've come up with something extra special. I've considered almost nothing else the whole time, just sitting back, sunbathing, thinking about the clue. I've got very little. I The rising waters really interest me because, obviously, uh, climate change is a big issue that people think a lot about now. I'm not sure how much water levels have changed since the... Uh, since the arrival of Europeans in Sydney area. And so I was wondering if it had something to do with like indigenous uh, movements after the last uh, interglacial maximum, like the end of the last ice age and the kind of formation of Sydney Harbour as it looks now. Mm. That would be fascinating. And then I thought maybe, and then somehow the Sydney Speedway in like near Rose Hill was in a location that might've had an Aboriginal sacred site. That was my, I'm pretty sure that's not what it is, but that was my attempt to bring the two parts together. Those are all excellent ideas and um, some good fodder for future stories, but none of them are anywhere near correct. Before I begin the story of a people displaced by rising waters and racing autos, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record our podcast. In my case, that's the Wiradjuri people. And in my case, it's the Nisanan people. And the land on which this week's history takes place, which is the Gundungurra and Darug people. Sovereignty was never ceded. So our story begins. Alistair, on the last episode I hosted, which was about the crossing of the Blue Mountains and the inevitable thirst that would be associated with such a journey, I mentioned the Blue Mountains as a meeting place for Aboriginal people, but not so much as a place of permanent habitation. You did. And... That got me thinking about what life was like for Indigenous people pre-invasion in the valleys adjacent to the Blue Mountains. Ah. And so today's story is actually about the Gundungurra people of the Burragarang Valley. Uh, does it? So is it to do with the Warringamba Dam by any chance? Yes, it is. Burragarang, Lake Burragarang is the lake formed by uh, Warragamba Dam. There we go. That would have been a better guess. I was going to possibly mention that. Well, that's or you know, I can always say that in hindsight, and you'll never know whether it was true. I don't believe it, but I did think you would get it. I thought it was a. I thought the first half of the clue was pretty easy, actually. But why are there racing autos near the the dam? Ah, well, we'll get to that, won't we? Now, in general terms, I tend to be a bit careful when I read uh, stories about how idyllic places used to be, but I do have a few quotes here that make the valleys of the Blue Mountains sound absolutely spectacular in the 18th century and previous times. Sid Bellingham, who was a hunter in the Blue Mountains, in 1883, he reflected on the early years, which would have been about 50 years prior to that, in the area around Janolan Caves. 
And he said that at that point in time, the whole country was teeming with game, especially rock wallabies. Lyrebirds were heard all day long on the hillside and in the creeks, and wong pigeon and satin birds came right down to the camp hut. The stillness of the night was broken by the cries of possums and flying squirrels and the occasional howl of a dingo. Sounds nice. I mean, I can imagine it would have been very beautiful, but I mean, probably also quite a hard environment to live in in other ways. But uh, I've been thinking about those the, the rivers as well, because I know afterwards I asked you a little bit about why the mountains couldn't be crossed by following the rivers. And you were saying that they, they mm. can get pretty steep um, and difficult to traverse in, in places. But I imagine they're quite, uh, quite intense landscapes at times. Yeah. And I, uh, I did a little recce last weekend of the area I'm talking about. And um, I was camped up in an area near uh, Shooters Hill, which is sort of south of the Blue Mountains on the western slopes. And yeah, just beautiful, steep creek lines and really nice country, but definitely uh, lacking in the sort of biodiversity that you would have seen there in in years gone by. Below the eucalypts, there's just not that much there. Mm -hmm. So this was something, uh, this sort of loss of biodiversity was something that was actually well known in Sydney pretty early on. By 1896, a journalist uh, for a newspaper in Sydney, asked a Gundungara elder, Old Billy, how he can account for the disappearance of the old animals, birds, and fruits, for the white man have not shot the fruits. And Old Billy replied, I don't know, but I suppose it's just that it's the time for my people to be replaced by another had come. And so all the animals and fruits and birds they depended on vanish. It's not the shooting. There's not enough of that to account for it. It's just that their time has come too. Hmm. Well, that's fascinating, if uh, very, very sobering and depressing. Um, but I'm also very curious what, what fruits they might have been talking about at that time. Yeah, and that's an interesting point, because within 50 years of white settlement in that area, the amount of um, sort of bounty of nature had just dropped right off. And so I think the one of the things that strikes a lot of non-Indigenous people heading into the bush today is that you kind of wonder what on earth people used to eat. Mm -hmm. And for me, that that quote sort of gives you an indication that there was actually a total ecological collapse in the 19th century in that part of the world. Mm -hmm. And would that have been, like, would the cattle have played a large part in that? And like, Because that wouldn't have been right in the middle of the mountains that there would have been large amounts of grazing, I imagine, but maybe the, the surrounding areas would have had enough of an impact. Yeah, just the flow-on effects of, of different land management would display... I mean, one factor would have been the displacement of Indigenous people meant that routine burning wasn't happened. So mm -hmm. right at the beginning of the 19th century in Sydney, uh, huge fires came through. Mm -hmm. It took 20 years for that to happen because it took 20 years for the fuel load to build right. up because previous to that it was being managed. So that would be a huge factor. I'd only be guessing at others. Right. But in the same way that if you, you know, you can take a single species out of a complex ecosystem and it's the butterfly effect. Right. The flow on effect just builds and builds through the food chain. That's basically what happened here. Mm -hmm. Right. And, if, and you're talking about the kind of general Blue Mountains area this, this time. Yeah. So the Barragorang, if you don't know where Warragamba is, the Barragorang Valley is basically just south of the main Blue Mountains, which is the you know, through Katoomba, where the road and the train line go and the towns are. Mm -hmm. While all that was going on, the fertile plains alongside the Coxes and Wallandilly rivers in the Barragrong Valley were being settled. 
which happened pretty early because, uh, as you kind of alluded to, it didn't require the mountains to be crossed. Right. So that was a Macquarie era project, was the settling of that valley. And it just increased through the 19th century. Um, so that by 1900, it was a sort of established farming community. Right. Um, and with that settlement, the Gundungara people of the Barograng Valley were steadily displaced. And I think we've probably got a case of selective history here. But some of the stories I read suggest that the cooperation between the British and the Gundungara people in the Barograng Valley was a lot better than it was at other places. But, I mean, it doesn't take a, a historian to figure out on whose terms that cooperation occurred. Right. If it, if it did. And as with uh, settlement elsewhere in the country, what happened was that first local people were squeezed off from the prime spots, which were quickly taken up by agriculture and forced back to less desirable areas. Right. And then over time we had that combined with the ecological collapse I was referring to that meant a lot of the previously stable food sources weren't that viable anymore. Right. And it meant that people sort of had this choice of either going full bush or participating in the colonial system, which meant, you know, accepting handouts or taking on work and also negotiating to be allowed to live on what was now considered to be someone else's land. Right. And what you were referring to as going full bush would also be a completely different experience from continuing the lifestyle that your people had 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 up to that point, because you, as you said, you'd have a different different uh, environment to live in because it's been, it's been damaged and also you've probably been forced off the land that you were actually uh, accustomed to living on and into some other less desirable land. Yeah, so you're up on the hills, you know, you're in the places that are cold, freezing cold in winter, places that run out of water in dry periods. Right. All the area, all the land that was managed for sort of easy food production would have been the same land that we use for food production today, which is the fertile floodplains. Right, right. So you're forced onto marginal land. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the sort of work that um, Indigenous people might have been doing in that time would have been stuff like tracking for the police. You hear about a lot of Indigenous people being finding work in that, um, guiding people, guiding um, agriculturalists through the mountains to get to more um, viable land on the other side, and also land clearing and farming what previously would have been their land, which is kind of heartbreaking to think about, yeah. actually. Yeah, it would have been very demoralising. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, in, in parts of the country, that's a recent, very recent history. So there's plenty of people alive who have lived that life of being displaced and being either directly forced or by economic circumstance into taking on that sort of role on their on their country. Right. At this particular place, it's sort of uh, a little bit more time's passed. Yeah. So as the white population of the valley increased, there was more and more tension between the Indigenous residents and the white population. And so people on both sides started petitioning the government to gazette Aboriginal reserves, which they did. I thought that might have been the direction this was going. <laughs> so as you'd expect, that wasn't um, necessarily on the most fertile land. It was on the, that exact marginal country we were talking about. Yeah, it's amazing how similar the, like that trajectory of history is to the treatment of Indigenous uh, people in what's now the USA. Right, so uh, I guess they're the legacy of reserves lasted a lot longer in most places though yeah but they're they're, all, they're never on the original land that these or rarely on the original land that the indigenous people were using and they're far more marginal land that's you know right. less useful and less desirable so but it's interesting you say all of that because eventually even the land that had been gazetted as reserves became desired for economic 
you know, useful purposes. Mm-hmm. And so over the course of time, all of the reserves in the Baragarang Valley were de-gazetted. Mm-hmm. And the last, the last reserve was closed in 1942. Oh, wow. Okay, so that's not that long ago. No. And you would have expected it to hang around longer than that, except I have a sneaking suspicion that they were de-gazetting land so that they could prepare for the um, building of the dam. Right. And is it spoiling it right now to ask when the dam was built? No, it is absolutely not. I was just coming to it. The Warragamba Dam started in 1948 um, and it was built to create more capacity for growth in Sydney because obviously Sydney was in a big period of growth at that point in time. More and more water was needed. And so just as we had uh, a new source of water in the 19th century in getting water from botany rather than Moore Park. In the 20th century, we came out to Warragamba. Yeah. And as we know up to today, uh, sourcing water for Sydney is an ongoing issue that people are concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. Construction began in 48 and in 60, the valley, the dam wall was finished and the valley was completely flooded. Okay. Took 12 years. It did. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a pretty big project, I think for that point in time as well. So some people were literally carried out of there say their desire to stay was so strong. This is indigenous Australians. Yeah, but also settlers. Okay. Because by 1948, you're talking about people that had, what's that? Yeah, getting up towards 150 years mm-hmm. of familial heritage in the area. Right. That, yeah, you could definitely have a pretty strong attachment even in 150 years. Oh, absolutely. It's an yeah. enormous amount of time really. yeah. in, in almost any context, except in terms of like traditional occupation of Australia. Right. 150 years is ages. <laughs> Now, when the water, when the dam was raised and the valley flooded, a enormous lake was formed, which is called Lake Baragarang, and it holds 2,000 gigalitres when full, which is four Sydney harbours in the accepted New South Wales uh, unit of measurement of a, of a Sydney harbour. <laughs> I was going to ask for you to translate that. That's a great translation. Jeez, that's a lot of water. Yeah, it's huge. And uh, the surface area of the dam when it's full is 75 square kilometres, uh, which is three city of okay. Sydney LGAs. What's an LGA? Local government area. Right. It's like Clovermore's area three times over. Exactly. So it's 52 kilometres long. And underneath that lake, hundreds and hundreds of kilometres of river was flooded. And the dam was 142 metres high and 351 metres long. And I'm sad to say I've never actually been there, although I have heard that it's an excellent spot for a picnic. Yeah, I've never been there either. I was I was going to mention that. I've never seen the lake. I've never seen the dam. I know what it looks like from looking at Google Maps, like in terms of where it is. But I've yeah, I've never been there. Have you never spotted the lake from the air? Uh, no, I don't think I have. Hmm, well, you'll have to have a look out the window when you're flying into Sydney next. I think I, yeah, no, I have. I, no, I haven't. I have no excuse, but I, I don't think I've seen it. So obviously that was a pretty uh, a pretty difficult thing for the residents of the Barragarang Valley. Um, and for the Indigenous residents, uh, it was especially problematic because, as you would well know, for Indigenous Australians, um, place has a lot of significance because the creation stories are all tied into specific places. Um, and, you know, to a large degree sense of identity is built around place more strongly mm-hmm. than it is in um in in western society um mm-hmm. and so for the people of the Baragarang valley there was they have 15 sacred water holes um in the valley that relate to their creation stories and when warragamba was built and the valley flooded 11 of those were submerged right 
yeah, really like the, the whole area is completely transformed. And when I say transformed, it's underwater. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, you can say, oh, the effects of settlement and the effects of the rifle and cattle and blah, blah, blah. But uh, it's a completely different thing when something just gets totally flooded. And the other thing is access is heavily restricted because it's a water security issue. Okay, yeah. So where did all these people go when they were displaced by the arrival of settlers? That's a great question, Jed. That's almost the question I should have asked <laughs> if I was more on, on my game. Don't worry, I'll ask myself. Uh, well, I would say, Alistair, in answer to your very excellent point in question, that they probably went all over the place, which would have definitely dealt an irreparable blow to the continuity of the Dreamtime storytelling I was just talking about. Yeah. But thankfully, by 1948, when um, the dam started being constructed, there was already a place, uh, a place with a burgeoning Indigenous community that was developing in Katoomba. And it was a, a place that was formed by both Darug and Gundagar people because they were obviously both being displaced from their um, traditional homelands and by slightly different reasons, but mainly through settlement. And then obviously for the Gundagar people, there was also the issue of the dam. Right. And the Darug is, is greater Western Sydney and Gundagar is kind of southwest. Like the, is that the Southern Tablelands and that area? Yeah, yep. Southern Islands, Southwestern Sydney and what we might call the Blue Mountain, but the lower, it's more subtly reaches of that area. Right. So that's fascinating. So they, there was a quite a large uh, indigenous kind of settlement around the Katoomba, Katoomba area of people who'd been displaced by European invasion and kind of settled uh, in that area. Yeah. So in, in sort of prehistory, there, was, there wasn't permanent community up there. Mm-hmm. But... In, the, in that way we just described of people getting pushed out of the prime lands, Katoomba did develop into a place with a permanent indigenous community. I never knew that. And it was at a place called the Gully, and it's right in the middle of what is now the town of Katoomba. Huh. Um, and the first reported indigenous bloke that lived there was a Darug man called Alfred Locke, and he died in 1903. Okay. So obviously the history of the place goes back fair way. Archaeological artifacts found at Wentworth Falls, which is just down the hill from Katoomba, suggests that uh, sort of occasional or seasonal occupation of the area began around 22,000 years ago. Okay. But the permanent habitation in the gully started in the 1890s. Yeah, I can't believe... I I mean, I can believe that I've never heard of that, but I've been to Katoomba quite a few times, so I never heard of it. No, neither had I. So oral tradition tells us that the gully was a popular camping and meeting spot pre-contact. It's like a natural amphitheater, so it's quite protected. It's extremely beautiful. It had a natural spring... And it was right on the trading route and track that is now the Great Western Highway and railway line. Right. So it sounds more or less as ideal as it can get within the Blue Mountains. Yeah, it's super nice. And the good thing is if you go there today and see it, you can get an idea of what it would have been like. So is it now built over by Katoomba or is it still a somewhat natural area? Mate, you're jumping ahead. Well, I try to ask you the right questions. (laughs) Yeah, that's fascinating that that area that was already well known to those people, but became an actual, it had a different purpose for them once there was complete disruption of their life uh, from European invasion. Yeah, it was like a getaway, like a, where we've always got that up our sleeve kind of situation. Yeah. So all was well in the gully. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't, but for the purpose of this story, we'll say all was well in the gully and four generations of families uh, lived there from the 1890s until 1957 oh, wow. when they were tragically displaced again. Can you guess why? By those those racing autos. Um, well, 
want to think a little bit about this since I've done so badly so far with the clue, because as you were telling us about the history of the road through the Blue Mountains, that had been there for a very long time. So it's kind of interesting that in near Katoomba, which is right next to that road, you were able to have a thriving or somewhat thriving indigenous settlement that was uninterrupted by that that road for quite 60 years. And then something changed about that road or about the city of Katoomba that uh, completely displaced the people of the gully. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe they... Um, what happened? What did they do? Well, the gully we've discussed is a beautiful spot right near the train station, actually. Um, and so competing uses of the gully were myriad. The Blue Mountains was sort of setting itself up as a popular tourist destination really early on, as soon as the railway line opened, basically, which I think was about the 1860s or 70s. Yeah, when was the Hydro Majestic built? Yeah, no, I'm not I'm not exactly sure when the Hydro Majestic opened, but um, I'd say it was around the turn of the century. And yeah, it's a great example of that early kind of tourism of the area. Okay. So one of these most significant um, of these competing uses for the gully was a businessman's decision in the 1940s to dam Kadumba Creek, which is the creek that runs through the gully, creating a large pond, which he then dumped an old Catalina fighter jet in the middle, well, not a jet, but fighter plane in the middle of, and threw up a Ferris wheel on the banks. Oh, gosh. And so in the 1940s, you could have a lovely weekend away from the big smoke at Catalina Park. With a rusting... Looking <laughs> with a rusting uh, aircraft in the middle of a lake. Well, you could pay a, a small fee and be paddled out there on a little boat. And it's quite a small pond, so you're only paddled about 15 metres to the fighter jet. Uh, sorry, plane. Don't think it was a jet. And then you could climb aboard the plane and watch a video of a Catalina fighter plane flying around um, while you sat in the middle of it. Gosh, this, this, yeah, you know, sometimes, sure, it was awful that they built the massive dam for the water for Sydney, but you do need water, so at least there's there's a basic human need being met. I'm not sure that sitting in a rusting plane watching a video about planes is a basic human need. No, it is, it is sad, um, and you'll be pleased to know it wasn't hugely successful. So I'm sure the residents of the gully were frustrated that they had a new neighbour but relieved that they could still live there in relative peace. And that he was a failing businessman. That did change in 1957 when another businessman, these businessmen seem to have a lot to answer for. Bloody businessmen. They certainly do. Thought it would be a good spot for a racetrack. Jeez. (laughs) But there's no... I mean, as far as I know, there isn't a racetrack in Katoomba, so obviously that didn't go that far. I just... It blows your mind what people decide will be a good idea to do in a beautiful part of the world where I just wish there could be no racetracks. Well, you will be disappointed to know that it was built. Uh, The Blue Mountains Council thought it was a wonderful idea to get more people up to the mountains. And so the residents were evicted and the beautiful wooded creek gully was bulldozed which meant that the natural spring that was there was bulldozed too, and it's no longer there. Oh, man. And the middle of what is now Katoomba became home to roaring race cars. So it was one of, just kind of one of those ovular, ovular uh, racetracks where you go round and round in circles making loud noises? 
Yeah, if you if you uh, search Catalina Park, which is named after the fighter plane, oh gosh, you can see the shape of it. I would describe it as a fidget spinner. Okay, if that means anything to you, sort of like th- like a like a figurine, like a boomerang with another another bit sticking out. Okay, gee, this story is. I mean, it gets worse every time. I, I'm finding it hard to believe this is all true, but okay. <laughs> Perhaps, thankfully, for the residents of Katoomba at any rate, that didn't last long because it turns out Katoomba was a shocking spot for a racetrack. <laughs> all that fog, who could have known? <laughs> and around the same time, new racetracks were developing in Western Sydney and in Bathurst, so there was no need to kind of go up to Katoomba. Yeah. After the 70s, use of the track wound back a lot. And it was completely abandoned in the early 90s. Gee, that's not that long ago, though. Tell me, how like how many physical remains of this track can still be seen today? Uh, heaps. You can ride around it on your bike. And I walked around it last weekend. So it's still there? In the middle of Katoomba? It's still there. It's, it's very overgrown. The track obviously hasn't been maintained at all. It's very obvious. You don't need to be an archaeologi- archaeologist to, uh, to go and see it. Um, yeah, so it's still there. It's overgrown. And so in this place, you have these sorts of three levels of history all really quite obviously coexisting, which was the, the, the history of the gully as an Aboriginal place, the flooded pond, which has had its plane removed, and then and the racetrack. So, but the pond's still there? This pond's still there, yeah, and the racetrack going through the whole thing. Oh, wow. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a dump right now. Yeah. Where, where is it? Is it right in the downtown of Katoomba? I've, I've never noticed it. Yeah. If you go southwest from the train station... It's there, but it's, like, it's it's outrageously close. It's a 10-minute walk from the station, I'd say. Okay, and it's just kind of overgrown now, and no one's really bothered to do anything else with it. No. So that would have been the case in the late 90s, but in 2002, the gully was declared a protected Aboriginal place. Okay. And so that's sort of like a heritage listing for somewhere of Indigenous significance. Mm-hmm. And I don't know too much about this or how it plays out in terms of decision-making, but there's basically a co-management plan of the site between the Darug and Gundungara traditional owners and the Blue Mountains Council. Okay. Um, and so how that plays out for you know someone like me who just rocked up and wanted to have a look is that the gully is this sort of strange mix of, like, it's got some, a little bit of Centennial Park vibes. Okay. But also there's quite a lot of established bush bushland. Uh, there's a, a, an overgrown abandoned racetrack running right through the middle of the whole thing. But there's also quite a lot of uh, like sort of exposed sandstone bricks and contemporary interpretive trails describing the indigenous and also more uh, mid 20th century recreational history of the site. Okay, because I was going to ask if it was like if you were allowed to walk around or whether you kind of hopped a fence, but it seems like so it's actually a place where you're encouraged to walk around and there's trails and it's yeah it's a place to go yeah and on saturday there was you know kids and families and blah 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 all kind of there um and it it might sound super random and i'm not sure if it sounds remotely appealing but in my opinion it actually all works pretty well i mean it sounds interesting any any place like that where you've got kind of i don't know crumbling remains of ill-advised schemes but yeah and nature's kind of half taking it over (laughs) They're always interesting to walk around. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess through being an Aboriginal place, they've got access to some money for bush regen. So, yeah, the the Indigenous history of it is strongly alluded to, um, right. even though that's probably the part of it that's least visible. Because all this stuff was put on top of it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, 
I really like springs. I like the idea of freshwater <laughs> springs with the water just coming out of the rock. And I'm, I feel like that it's really tragic that that was just presumably paved over or what it, the, the racetrack completely demolished it. And that you don't really get a feel of what that gully would have been like when the indigenous people moved up there to kind of escape from the stuff that was going on in the lower valleys. Yeah, it's a it's an extraordinarily tragic series of events, you know, building a racetrack in this area that was like the sort of last home of these people that had been displaced already and also was a beautiful natural space is just, you know, I really feel like people should have known better by then, but I guess they still don't. So the 50s also have a lot of time a lot a lot to answer for. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Too many dollars, not enough cents. <laughs> So that's the gully, and now for a little bit more tragedy, we'll hop back down the hill into the Baragrang Valley, where the Gundagara's people's homeland is once again under threat. You mentioned the need for Warragamba for water security, which is definitely true, but Water New South Wales is currently uh, putting together a proposal um, to raise the wall of Warragamba by 14 metres. Okay. Um, and it's not actually to provide extra water for Sydney. It's to provide flood mitigation. So basically, once the river, once the dam hits 100%, if it rains more, there's still room to store extra water and release it in a managed fashion. Um, rather than flooding downstream, which would be the Nepean into the Hawkesbury, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that does sound, you know, good for the residents of the floodplains of Western Sydney. But one issue is that much of the catchment of the Nepean is not behind Warragamba. So if it rains in, in, you know, sort of the greater Picton area, then the dam won't help at all. And the other thing is that once that flood mitigation uh, has been built, there'll be a stronger case to develop more of the floodplains. And so there's talk of an extra 140,000 houses in an area that today would be considered unsafe due to the risk of flooding. Okay, right. That would make sense. I also find it very hard to believe that once you have extra capacity in that dam, you're not gonna you're gonna consider that 110 percent and not just be like, no, that's the new 100 percent. Yeah, yeah, and then why why stop at 14? <laughs> yeah, keep going up. So I mean, 14 meters might not sound like much, but because the dam is so big, the sorry, the lake is so big, yes. uh, we're talking 1,300 hectares of national park uh, bushland that would be destroyed under that the flooding from that 14 meter wall. Right. Which is 65 kilometres of remote, wild, protected river that would become completely degraded because, you know, once a section of bushland is flooded, even just temporarily until the water's released, none of the trees can live once they've been submerged like that. So you just end up with these sort of, I don't know if you've seen a dam when it's half full, but just these scarred banks. Jed, I've spent enough time in California to see a lot of half full dams. <laughs> Good. And it's especially sad for the Gundagara people of the Baragarang Valley because, as you may recall, that when the dam was first built, 11 of their 15 sacred waterholes were flooded. Right. Well, if the dam wall is raised 14 metres, two of the remaining four will be submerged also. Wow. I like the way that you've uh, managed to bring that all the way back around. So we've got a contemporary issue that brings us back to things that were happening in the well, mid-1900s and then all the way back through the 1800s. Mm, thank you. So that's the story of the Gundungara people of the Baragarang Valley and subsequently the Gundungara and Darug people of the Gully in Katoomba. That's fascinating, Jed. I really, really appreciated that. That was a really... I knew nothing about either of those things and I 
also feel like it's very unlikely that I would have ever learned about the the connection between that dam and then a settlement up in Katoomba because I think of those as fairly somewhat unrelated places. So it's really great to have those two stories connected like that. Yeah, and I was super stoked when I started down this rabbit hole that I could tie it into a previous story I've done, which is what I was alluding to last week. And I should say, uh, if anyone's interested in this story, um, there's an excellent book called Sacred Waters, which is a history of the Gully traditional owners by Diane Johnson. And um, if you want to hear, uh, hear, see, or read more about the Water New South Wales plan to raise the dam wall, um, just search for the Give a Dam campaign, and there's an excellent 20-minute video you can watch for free on their website that shows some awesome footage of um, the valley that we're talking about this week. Um, and also gives you a bit of background in terms of um, the ecological and indigenous uh, history of the area. Fascinating. And another great thing about this story, Jed, is now my trip up to the Blue Mountains to see that steep hill going down to the Collets Inn will now be able to include a visit to the gully. Yeah, you're going to have to set aside a week to visit all the sites that I talk about. (laughs) There's a lot to see. (laughs) And I've still got to get myself down to Botany. Yeah. Indeed. Well, thanks a lot for that story today, Jed. I really enjoyed it. You're very welcome. And what fresh content can I look forward to in a fortnight's time? Well, Jed, uh, I now believe that we're starting to set up some kind of precedent with you doing much better with my clues than I've been doing with yours. And my next one, I, I fear I'm not even going to be able to create a particularly good clue for, but here's my, here's my crack at it. Uh, the story that we're going to be talking about in a fortnight's time involves a highly lucrative government-backed monopoly that laid the foundations for a lasting institution of public philanthropy. Hmm. I mean, the first thing I thought of was Star City, but I'm not sure that that's an institution of public philanthropy. <laughs> I'm really glad that, that your mind leapt there because we're, we're talking early, early history of uh, the European settlement of Sydney. Can I please have the clue but again? The, the parallels are interesting. Um, you certainly can. It's a bit of a mouthful. It Let is. Let me try again. It definitely is. I, it's, it's trying to disguise something that I think you might already know about. <laughs> All right, you ready? Mm-hmm. The story in a fortnight's time is going to be about a highly lucrative government-backed monopoly which laid the foundations for a lasting institution of public philanthropy. Uh, I think I know what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's about the rum, the rum market, which was extremely controlled by the government uh, post-rum rebellion. And I believe that the institution in question was uh, the hospital on Macquarie Street. Am I close yeah, you might well be. You might well be, but we'll have to learn more about the exact <laughs> details of the uh, of the rum contract in a fortnight's time. Well, I'm very excited to to chat with you about this uh, next fortnight. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Stories from Sydney: History of the Harbour City as much as we enjoyed making it. If you've got any questions, comments, complaints, or if you'd like to know more about anything you heard this episode, then you can reach us through our Facebook page, Stories from Sydney or by email, storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. 
And if you have a suggestion for a story that you think we'll all enjoy, it's best to email us, but please make sure to indicate if the suggestion is for Jed or for me in the subject line so that the other one knows not to read it and we can make sure to have a fresh and surprising story each week. Each episode. (laughs) So we can make sure to have a fresh and surprising story each episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support us, share with your friends, spread the love. Uh, We've had over 500 listens to our podcast already, which we're super stoked about. So thanks very much, everyone. And see you next time for Alistair's Story from Sydney. Yay!